Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1173, air date February 25th, 2023. Uh, Dr. Shiva, are you able to join? Yes, I'm right here. Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, we can see you and we can. Yes, hear you. Uh, good evening. This is the Leadership Summit, right? 2023, we're on. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, good evening, everyone. I know this is uh, taking place in India, but I assume it's also being broadcast elsewhere. So, what I wanted to talk about today was um, uh, I think the title was A Man Who Invented Email Now Revolutionizes Medicine, but the detail of this is really about system science. Um, some of you may know there's a field in engineering which built really came out in the 1900s in the United States, really um, uh, peaked at around the 1950s. It's a field called the science of systems. And that has been a driving force in my life. And the science of systems is what I believe should be taught in every, frankly, it should be taught at the kindergarten level. And anyone who runs any company, any organization, for that matter, every human being should learn the science of systems. Because in the 21st century, Without the knowledge of the science of systems, people basically are walking around with bows and arrows while those who understand the science have a significant advantage. So as a part of this, I'm going to walk through my journey in the invention and creation of two very profound systems, email, which I did as a 14-year-old kid while working at a small medical college in New Jersey, which is a story that everyone should know. Uh, I know there's an Indian audience here, but not only should every Indian know this, but every child should know who invented email. It's an important story for far too long. Um, it's essentially been um, not talked about for all sorts of reasons you're going to hear about today. And then as a part of that, you'll also hear that uh, one of my real interests has been in the field of medicine, um, particularly integrating traditional medicine with conventional medicine. Traditional medicine mean, meaning the systems of medicine that have existed in India for thousands of years. Um, with modern developments in medicine, particularly in a field called systems biology. Again, the word systems will appear there. And then finally, what I want to talk about is um, putting those together is one of the latest systems I've created called Truth Freedom Health, which integrates science, it integrates um, uh, political leadership uh, movements, and also health. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, um, uh, Prachi, what is the schedule? How much time do we have for this, for my talk? And is there a Q&A? Uh, yeah, so you have total one hour of time, out of which 45 minutes you can speak and uh, 15 minutes uh, for the Q&A. Okay, so let me begin. I have some slides set up here. Let me bring up some slides so we can share them um, because I think they're pertinent to this uh, discussion. Let me bring it up here. Let me just make sure you guys can see the slides. Um, can you see the slides there? Not now. Okay, let me bring it up. Um, all right, so let me, I think I have sharing capability, right? Yes. Okay, so you, you should really see these slides. You see them? Yeah, and uh, we can see your screen, not the slide. Oh, okay, it says I'm sharing with you. Yeah, it's get educated or be. What's that? It is get, uh, get educated or be. Exactly, yep. So let, let me start here, okay? Um, it is, uh, yeah, this, this frame is correct. Yeah. So let me give you my background. Um, you should see a picture of a bunch of skyscrapers. You see that, right? So I, uh, you know, grew up in two worlds. I was born in India in 1963. I grew up 
in Bombay, as many of you know, or now it's called Mumbai, is a very, very cosmopolitan city. Um, and it's a city within cities within cities, right? You have many languages, many castes, many um, different religions, um, people from all different backgrounds. But I also, um, and, and those of you who don't know, I mean, this is, Bombay hasn't changed that much, or many of the cities in India haven't changed, but you'll see in one scene, in an Indian city scene, you'll see many, many uh, vehicles for transport. But I also grew up in another India. I grew up in a deep South Indian village, and many people live in the cities today. I've never experienced this, but I was fortunate to experience this, um, where my grandparents, uh, and these are some of the scenes from this uh, South Indian village, were poor village farmers. Uh, they were subsistence farmers. So my grandmother, uh, this is a picture of her in her Sunday best, but she worked in the fields for 16 hours, but on the weekends, she was a village healer. Now, India has an ancient system of medicine, which unfortunately, um, in many ways, because of the hegemony of traditional conventional medicine has been forgotten about. But my grandmother, people would come to her home, she could observe people's faces. And then based on observing their face, she would predict what was their ailments in their body. Now, in the ancient systems, this was called Samudrika Lakshanam. Um, there's, in fact, a book written on it. And in the Indian system of medicine, they have a very interesting way of looking at the body. So if you look at the body on the top part, which is an inverted pyramid, you have a system here, which is not only includes a physical body, but it also includes the minds, the senses, and what they call the chakras. But these systems are composed of tissues, the dhatus, but one of the central parts of the Indian system, again, system, was this concept of a tridosha, vata, pitta, kapha. I'm not going to get into it today. And that was fueled by the five elements, by the gunas, etc. Anyway, the average Westerner looking at something like this will probably say this is a bunch of garbage, you know, it doesn't make any sense. Well, this is a system of medicine that's been practiced for over 5,000 years in India. And so my grandmother, who was had no education, no degrees, had tattoos all over her arms, um, was a practitioner of this, and she helped every day villagers, because in most Indian villages in those days, a woman was actually the healer. You didn't have most doctors had too big of an ego to actually go back to their villages and help. Um, so... But I also grew up in an India, which many Indians do not want to talk about, which is the Indian caste system. We were considered low caste untouchables uh, in a caste system which still exists today. And, and it should be talked about because it's an important area of healing and advancement. So here I was exposed to a very deep system of medicine um, and I was I developed a love for medicine. And I was also exposed to this very interesting caste system where I experienced as a child many of these inequities. And I was moved to understand political systems also. Um, and um, my parents in 1970 left India on my seventh birthday. It was quite extraordinary. My mother, who'd grown up in a broken family where the father left, left her homeless, somehow figured out a way to get a master's in mathematics, quite an extraordinary woman. And my dad had grown up in war-torn Burma where he didn't see his first book until the age of 10 and he became an engineer. So my parents are very, very extraordinary people who worked very hard and, um, we had the opportunity to come to the United States in 1970. So I was very, very aware uh, of these fundamental realities. And so um, I worked very, very hard. By the time I was 14, for example, I had finished all my uh, courses in mathematics, calculus, which is what's taught at the high school. I finished it in ninth grade. And my mom had seen this little clipping in a newspaper. This is in, you can see it's 1978. Um, and New York University had, had put out a call that they were going to allow um, uh, 40 students 
to go to NYU and get a deep computer science education. Now, this is in 1970, 70s, when a computer was not your laptop. There was no, nothing like that. It was a huge mainframe computer. But the person who had started this program by the name of Henry Mullish, it was a visionary, and he knew software engineering was going to become a big field at some point. So he wanted to allow high school students to come to New York University and get an intensive computer science program. So we learned seven programming languages, you know, digital theory, transistors. So I was one of those 40 students chosen. Um, I was below the age, the cutoff. It was actually for 16 year olds. I was 14. So I was very fortunate to get selected among these 40 students across the United States. So my mother would drop me off at the train station in Newark, New Jersey, which is very, very, a lot of crime ridden. Most people are afraid to take the train from there. But as a 14 year old, I used to take it to NYU. And, uh, you know, so it's quite interesting for a young kid to go to a formal university at what is known as the Corant Institute of Mathematical Sciences. And there I learned uh, six, seven computer uh, programming languages and also learned um, digital theory. And this was sort of the hall, you know, one of the halls there. So we were, and I graduated top of the class among those 40 students with honors. And when I finished this, um, I had an interesting now opportunity, right? What do I do, right? So what ended up happening was I ended up getting a job um, through a friend of ours at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School, which is also in the heart of Newark, New Jersey. And people need to understand, if you go look up Newark, New Jersey, it is predominantly African-American. Um, it is one of the poorest cities in the United States, but there was a small medical college there. And I was given initially the opportunity to do research of because of my interest in medicine, Look, trying to understand why babies were dying in their sleep. Some of you may know that um, there's a disease called sudden infant death syndrome where babies suddenly stop breathing. So they had some wonderful sleep data. And, you know, and then when, the, and also when the baby would stop sleeping. So I was given access to the state as a 14 year old kid and wrote some very, very important, what you would call AI programs back then, 1978, to understand when the baby would stop breathing by looking at the past history of sleep patterns. And in fact, wrote a paper on it, one of the um, medical journals uh, before I came to MIT. But while I was also there, um, I was also introduced to another system. Okay. What was that system? Well, anyone over the age of 40 will remember, 50 now will remember that in the old offices of the 1970s, in fact, all the way up to the 1990s, um, Every office in this medical in this medical school, there are about a thousand offices, and in those uh, offices, there was always a woman who was in the office called a secretary. By the way, in those days, women could only have three or four jobs: housewife, secretary, nurse, or teacher. Right? And the secretary on her desktop, as you can see, she had the inbox, a physical box, the outbox, folders, file folders, paper clips for attachments, and she had a typewriter, and she would write this thing called a memo. And the memo had a very particular format. In fact, it had to look like this with a little uh, memorandum. You had a to, from, CC literally meant you would take a piece of carbon paper, put it behind the white bond paper, type another copy. You could also do BCC and date and subject. Then you write the body and you could do enclosed and you would attach a little attachment. Well, this was a system. It's not just a simple sending of little notes. This was a very complex system, inbox, outbox, folders, you had the trash bucket. Um, and um, all of these, and the memo was a very important element of this. And this would be put into these little yellow envelopes, and it would be sent in these pneumatic tubes. 
All right. And, and then people process, and this was called the inter-office mail system, the inter-office paper-based mail system, all right? Um, so that's what we need to understand. This was not just simply, um, uh, you know, one little thing, but it con contained many, many hundreds of different features that needed to be integrated together to make this run. It was truly a system. In you needed the inbox, you needed the outbox, you needed the drafts folder. You could also send registered mail, okay? So all of these things comprise the system. Now you have to understand in those days, um, the people who use computers, what did they look like? Well, they surely didn't look like women um, in skirts. They looked like they were typically old white men with a lab jacket and they knew very, very cryptic computer code, okay? Modern computer languages hadn't come out. You had Fortran, you had uh, things called uh, Snowball, COBOL, PL1 these kinds of languages, which I knew. And those large mainframe computers, there was no email on these systems. You could send little text messages at best, but the concept of converting this entire system, all of these components into the electronic version was seen as impossible. And you'll see later we found a document in 1977 before I started creating it by the people who would later uh, attempt to create a controversy on the invention of email, which I did, that uh, they had done it. When in fact, they thought converting this entire system to the electronic version was impossible. And I'll, I'll bring you to that because they thought women and secretaries were not smart enough to use computers and you could not create user interfaces and uh, software that could allow that. So there was a lot of biases. But as a 14-year-old, I didn't have any of these biases, and I was asked to convert this entire system to the electronic version. And I did that in 50,000 lines of code in Fortran code, which was really designed for mathematics. There was no text. It was really not for text. And I named that system email. So I wrote all the code to capture all of these features. And if people go to inventoremail.com, you'll see all the features I had to enumerate. And I named that system email, a term never used in the English language. So not only did I create the system, the first to do it, but I also named it email. Why? Because the operating system only allowed five characters. It was not an obvious term. It may seem obvious today. All right. Um, in fact, this was in the local newspaper. Obviously, you know, my parents weren't wealthy enough to go get PR people. Uh, but you can see uh, this was the uh, in the local newspaper. I won one of the Westinghouse Science Awards. The, the 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 Westinghouse Awards were known as a baby nobles, and they would select 300 kids um, at varying levels. So I won one of the honors awards back then, recognizing me for the invention of email. And, um, you know, I continued working on this. Now, when I came to MIT in 1981, I was very, very interested, deeply interested in um, medicine. And I really wanted to study medicine. Um, I was elected also because of my interest in social services as the freshman student body president at MIT. And I was invited to go to the president's house of MIT. And by the way, when I came to MIT September 2nd, 1981 on the front page, they had listed me as one of the three of the thousand students to having invented email. So there was no controversy about who invented email back in 1981. Um, and when I spoke to Dr. Gray, who was a president of MIT, he was on Reagan's White House Science Council. And he said, you know, Shiva, it's too bad that the Supreme Court was not recognizing software patents. That's how new software was. Um, the notion of software being a digital machine 
was not <clears throat> even understood back then. So he said you should apply for a copyright because what had occurred was in 1980, the, the copyright laws were changed from 1976 to allow the use of copyright law to protect software invention. So let me repeat that again. There was no way to patent software. Only in what you could do in 1980 was you could use copyright law to protect software inventions. So again, there was no internet worldwide web. Then you had to write away for these PDFs or these files. You had to fill it in. And I did this as a 16, 17 year old kid on August 30th, 1982. I was awarded the first United States copyright for email computer program for electronic mail system, not for the word, but for the system. And so I have the, so this is like having the United States patent. Okay. I wrote the code. I have the patent. I named it email. So there is no controversy on who invented email. I did it. The issue is, um, why isn't this facts widely known? And why isn't it in this case, um, um, why every school child doesn't know it. I know more and more people are recognizing it, uh, knowing about it, but it's a very important story. So fast forward to 2011. So this is 1981. My mother, who was an amazing woman, in a three months before she died, she had a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis because when my parents first came here, they, she, my mom worked in a factory while she was going to school to learn computer programming. But in a suitcase, she had beautifully organized this was in um 2011 all the materials from 1978 documenting the invention of email among other things and after this occurred the editor of time magazine doug ameth who was a senior editor the only journalist by the way went through all of this which is fascinating also wrote an article called the man who invented email and you can go look at it, it was on time magazine and um Three months after that, the National Museum of American History, which is the number one museum in the world, the Smithsonian contacted me and they said, Dr. Shiva, we would like all of your materials. And then on, on um, February 16, 2016, three months after this article came out, I was honored by the Smithsonian with all these materials put in. And this was an article that was written by a young Washington Post reporter called Dr. Shiva Idre, honored by the Smithsonian as the inventor of email. Well, you would think in America, which prides itself on people coming bottoms up, right? The American dream, this would have been celebrated. But what happened was something quite extraordinary. You see, during those 33 years, I didn't promote myself, right? I was um, doing many other things. And during those 33 years, a defense company by the name of Raytheon had rebranded themselves with the at symbol, $35 billion defense company. And they had entered the cybersecurity market, branding themselves with a guy who looked like a nerd as the inventor of email. Okay. And what he had done was just write 15 minutes of code to add text to a, to a bottom of a file, a remote file. At best, it was a caveman version of Reddit. It was not email, but they had conflated what they had done. Now, I didn't know this. So when my stuff went into the Smithsonian. It was like a new skull was found in Africa. And the vitriol that I experienced as a brown skinned Indian person. In Indian American was an American citizen it was quite extraordinary. So these articles came out calling me all sorts of names, an asshole, a dick, a fraud. And these are important because this was put in print. And you can look at this. This was one of the blogs, which basically said that I should be hanged by my curry stained fingernails. And I want everyone to look at this because not one Indian stood up. 
Now, if there was, if, if I was Jewish and someone has said this against a Jewish person, people would have thrown up their arms or anyone else. But Indians allowed this to take place. So I had to fight for myself. So, in fact, a historian who is a, uh, in fact, if you want to talk about a liberal white supremacist historian, had called me all sorts of names because I went against his narrative. And here at that time, this was 2012, I was teaching a very important course at MIT, starting my new company, Cytosolve. And thousands of calls came in saying that I should be fired because I was lying. And all I had done was put this into the Smithsonian. And you can see Raytheon here had used the at symbol with this goofy looking guy who didn't invent email and he knows he didn't, conflated him to invent email. And this is called basically propaganda. So what I had to do was I had to figure out what was going on. And, and I've talked to women who've been raped and they say, when you get raped, you think you did something wrong. So I said, wow, maybe I didn't invent email. But I was very fortunate. One of my graduate students at MIT found this document written by this guy, David Crocker. And you can notice the date in December of 1977. And he was one who was attacking me, completely lying. Now he had forgotten that he had written this document in December, 1977. You can see what it says. Just read it. So he's writing in the end of 1977, saying it's impossible. In fact, no attempt is being made to emulate the full-scale interorganizational mail system, which is what I just showed you. And then he said, the fact that this is intended for people of various organizational contexts, secretaries, doctors, whatever you want to put, right? By users of differing expertise, which means you couldn't create one system which could support all these people. So these were people who were 30, 40 years my senior, they had thought it was impossible, right? But a 14-year-old kid didn't because I respected those sectors. In fact, the great Noam Chomsky is one of the <clears throat> most revered uh, scholars in the world, more cited. He was a, he's an uh, institute professor at MIT. He went through all the materials and he said, it's obvious the facts are indisputable who invented email. In the middle of this controversy, Walter Isaacson, as some of you may know, wrote the bio biography of Bill, uh, I think uh, he's uh, Bill Gates, or I'm sorry, Steve Jobs. So it's fascinating. So here, this fabricated controversy starts in 2012, and it's continuing in 2014. This so-called very esteemed liberal elite uh, writer writes this book called "The Innovators of the Digital Revolution." Now, I want to ask anyone: the innovators of the digital revolution. Anyone listening, uh, obviously email is part of the digital revolution. Would you not agree? Well, when you go through this book, the entire chapter on email is left out. But he praises all of these other people who have contributed to the digital revolution. I want to show you who he praises. And I just want you to look at it visually. Okay. These are the people he praises for creating the digital revolution. In fact, a woman. Now, what do you see common about this? And I have never played the race card in my life, but they're all white people. And here's a liberal white elite gentleman who praises everyone, but leaves that there's no dark skinned people who have contributed anything to the digital revolution. In fact, email is left out on purpose. Okay. And he ends his book uh, thanking Vannevar Bush. Vannevar Bush was the gentleman who was a president of MIT who in the 40s started Raytheon. And, and he says that all great innovations must come from the military industrial academic complex, which is big military, big you know, universities and big industry. It is called the golden triangle of the military industrial academic complex. So that means 
No one from Newark, New Jersey could invent anything. By the way, a 14-year-old boy is the one who invented TV, Philo Farnsworth. So you see, they've created a narrative that only big institutions out of war is where great innovations come from. But the problem they had was I had a very different journey. You see, I had invented email before I came to MIT in not this triangle. The triangle I, in email and great inventions came from was a loving family. I had infrastructure given to me by the medical school and I had some very good mentors. You don't need the military industrial complex. Now at MIT, I invented many things. It was on, on the front page for inventing many things. So this dark skin 14 year old boy doesn't fit their narrative, all right? So this is a system of nonsensical narratives of where innovation comes from. And even throughout the world right now, people try to create these innovation centers and they're never really gonna produce anything except very minor innovations, not things like email or TV, et cetera. More interesting, if you go on Wikipedia starting in 2007, my entire, or 11, my entire Wikipedia page was destroyed. In fact, the Wikipedia editor wrote this to me. He goes, he attempted a senior Wikipedia editor he goes, when I attempted to give you credit, he goes, right away, my edits were deleted without discussion, not to improve them. I was called ignorant, reckless, and the like. And he said, in fact, the email page was so controversial, more controversial than the issue of abortion or the Second Amendment in the United States. And why is this? And the reason this is, and by the way, what people didn't understand is that I've had a history, not only being a scientist and inventor, but an activist. There's me as a 17-year-old burning the South African flag on the steps of MIT. MIT was supporting racist South Africa. I challenged the MIT president. Uh, when one of my friends was jailed by the Sri Lankan government, we ran one of the biggest protests to get him out. So I've been an activist all my life and they didn't understand this. In fact, that's me uh, demanding that the US get out of Iraq during my PhD graduation. So I had to put all of my activism to work for that 14 year old boy. And it was a very interesting journey because it's one thing to fight for other people but it was a much more powerful realization that I had to fight for the truth, not for me to get credit for me, but the credit was important and credit is very important um, because credit shows where the origin of things come from. Well, in this case, the origin of email did not occur by some white guys in lab coats. It occurred by a 14 year old brown skinned Indian kid in Newark, New Jersey. So I built this website, inventor of email, I put up all the facts. Luckily, I had access to all of them. And then we went and sued Gawker Media, who had called me all those names. We drove them into bankruptcy and I got a $750,000 settlement. And by the way, none of the media will report on this. And they were forced to remove those three defamatory articles. So there you go. So in closing, when you really look at this, the main thing is the system of innovation occurs anytime, anyplace by anybody. And in fact, I've created a foundation where we recognize eight to 10 kids every year. We fund them, we support them in the ages of 14 through 18. So those are the facts about the invention of email. Those of you who are at this leadership summit, you should damn well make sure every person knows the facts about the invention of email. It's a duty because people need to understand the origin of where innovation comes from. It does not come from a bunch of white people at the military industrial academic complex and nothing against white people, okay? But the facts are that is true white supremacy, if people think that. And a lot of Indians in India also can uh, hang on to this because when the facts come out, ooh, an Indian invented email, oh, I don't know about that. It's a brainwashing, so you have to think about that, okay? Now, but here are the facts. There's email, there is the reality of the copyright, and no one can take this away. These are the ground facts. 
Now, let me switch to why I titled the talk, The Man Who Invented Emails, Revolutionizing Medicine. My deep interest has always been in medicine. And medicine is also, the entire pharmaceutical development process is a very dumb system, okay? Um, just like we had to move from the inner office mail system to the electronic, if you look at the way the pharmaceutical companies, the system that they use to develop medicines, it's this very, very screwed up model uh, where it's based on a single compound. What is a drug? A drug is not uh, a food. A drug is not a combination of compounds that come in nature. It's a synthetic compound. So if you take ibuprofen, it's one compound. And typically, you, they'll test this compound initially in a test tube. Then they'll kill a bunch of animals. That takes around six years. Um, if it's proven you don't kill too many animals, then you get to go to the FDA and go to phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, where you test on larger and larger groups of humans. It takes about 13 years, $5 billion. Pfizer, one of the largest pharmaceutical companies, has been losing money. Their revenue was six, uh, $65 billion in uh, 2012, and it's dropped uh, to about $40 billion in 2020. They needed vaccines, and their revenue went from $45 billion to $80 to $100, okay? Because this system of drug development, the drug that comes out is typically only works for 10% of the target population. And for the other 90%, it's highly toxic. Okay, this is why when you get a drug, you have all these side effects. So when you look at this process of drug development, it's no different than how we used to build airplanes in the old days. You come up with a design, right, or a drug, you throw the pilot in, if he crashes, you go, oh my God, he crashed. And then if he succeeds, he goes, oh, he succeeded. And then you try to explain why. You don't go into it with a mechanistic understanding. So. And if you peel away the layers, you also find that academic, the system of academic research, the reason this is so bad is that if the elephant, many of you may know the old story of the king uh, who talks about, uh, or Buddha who talks about the king who invited six blind men and an elephant came in and they all touched parts of the elephant. And this is what's called the reductionist approach. It's not a systems approach. So if the elephant represented cancer, little researchers are working on parts of it and they have a blinded view of reality. And, and you know, the guy who touches the tail thinks it's a brush, the guy who touch, or, or a rope, the guy who touches the, the, the trunk thinks it's a snake. And if they ever got together, you'd come up with something like this, which does not represent the elephant. So this is a problem with a non-systems approach, okay? You never see the whole because people aren't communicating, there's no integration. Um, and there's high specialization. You would get really bad software if we developed like this. So I felt there was a need for a revolution. And in 2003, something interesting was going on. In the field of biology, we had discovered in 2003, we have the same number of genes as a worm, a small worm. We had gone into um, the field of biology in, two, in 1993 when we were mapping the genome project. Everyone thought, oh, a worm has 20,000 genes. A human being must have you know, 100,000 genes or more because biologists are reductionists. They confuse complexity with the number of parts. They thought more genes, more complexity. The truth is it's not the number of parts that make something complex. It's the interconnections between the parts. So human beings have the same number of genes as a worm, but we have more interconnections. Those interconnections um, demand that if we want to model the whole human body, you have to go among genes, proteins, etc. In fact, if you look at the cell, you have to go outside of the nucleus. You have to be able to connect all these molecular pathways. So in 2003, 
I was running my other company on email, a new company I'd started, an AI company to analyze email, which I'd won as a contest for the White House called Echo Mail. And I came back to MIT <clears throat> to do this very interesting um, research, which was the challenge was, could you mathematically create a piece of software to model the entire human cell? So if you look, think about the cell as a big chemical reaction, imagine if you could mathematically model it. And every piece of the cell was these little molecular pathways, which were mathematical models. So that's what I did for my PhD work, which was use all my love of computing, my love of systems, and my love of medicine to think about the cell as a system of pathways, where instead of mashing them all together, you would keep them decentralized. You took an engineering systems approach, and that was a development of cytosol. And we published a very important paper on this. It took us three years to get this published, but we had created a technology that can mathematically model the entire cell. So instead of this old way of doing medic, uh, discovery medicines, cytosol could handle many compounds. And with these compounds, we could, long before we killed animals, in fact, we could eliminate the need for animal testing, um, we could then <clears throat> decide whether we should even test certain drugs or we could discover combinations. And no different than how we build airplanes, okay? So cytosol was a revolution in medicine. In fact, we created an entire collaboratory for this where we could go after every disease. And today, in 2023, we're going after every major disease on the planet, um, from osteoarthritis to cancer, et cetera. In fact, let me give you a couple of uh, processes in the interest of time, so we have questions. We have an entire process that we've created to take any field, extract out the knowledge via cancer, et cetera, and build these molecular pathways. So we work with many, many organizations which outsource work to us now because we can do better and faster than even the universities. And I'll give you an example. There's a, a very important area when you get Alzheimer's or any of these diseases, there's a part of your brain called a blood-brain barrier, which is composed of this very interesting thing called the pericytes, the endothelial and the astrocytes. Simply put, there's, there's a three-part system that controls vascularization of the brain. And what we did was we mapped out every piece of these subsystems, no different than we do software. And we created what we call a systems architecture, which we in software now. So no one in biology had known about this, but we literally mapped every disease here from Alzheimer's to ALS to dysfunctions in the signaling areas, what, we, what you call the API layer. And then we have, have all the molecular pathways mapped. So this was quite revolutionary. We submitted it to the number one journal in the world. They thought half of the reviewers thought it was revolutionary and the other half thought I was crazy. We were writing, making up terms. They never heard of the term systems architecture. Anyway, this did get published. Um, it's got it's one of the most cited papers in neuroscience right now. The other thing we did was not only can we do pretty pictures, but one of the important things to do here was could we actually model something and validate it with wet labs? So when you exercise or you run, um, uh, blood flows through your arteries and it generates nitric oxide. If you go read the literature on this, you'll find all these people talking about different ways this occurs. With cytosol, we're able to connect them, compute them, and this black line represents how much nitric oxide gets released over time. That's our prediction. Is it true? So we did wet lab experiments at Harvard Medical School, and you see um, it matches almost perfectly. So this was published in the second leading journal in the world called Cells Biophysical Journal. So what we've created now is a technology that can literally mathematically model very complex disease. This isn't a case of a rare disease. Here's our model, here's the animal model. And um, this company, Al Nylon, which is a $20 billion company, basically 
uh, validated that our computer predictions match the in vivo predictions. The final thing I want to end with is going back to my grandmother. Uh, you know, in India, we mix curry, for example, is a mixture of herbs. Well, this paper came out in, again in Nature saying that if you're going to solve cancer, you have to mix many, many different drugs. Well, my thesis was the only one Cytosoft cited in there is being able to do this. So in about, you know, a couple of weeks, we raised about a million dollars. We modeled all the molecular pathways of cancer, particularly pancreatic cancer. And then we ran through all the generic drugs, millions of combinations. We discovered one drug. And in fact, the FDA gave us allowance. In fact, the FDA was so impressed. They said, we've never seen anything like this. This is really the future of 23rd century medicine. And finally, if you go back to an Indian village, you'll find people mixing different herbs. So what we've applied, what we're doing today is we're going after every traditional medicine and we're validating that with cytosol. So if you eat haldi or manjal, as it's called in South or turmeric, there is a component called curcumin, which hits many, many different molecular pathways to lower inflammation, which we've mathematically modeled. Same thing happens if you drink some red wine, the red grapes. With cytosol, we're able to find out what happens if you're having your curry meal and you're drinking a glass of wine, and we're actually able to mathematically model it. So here, what you see is when you don't give any curcumin, any resveratrol, you have high inflammation. This year, these are computer simulations. When you give curcumin, it lowers it from 0.15 to 0.05. When you just take resveratrol from 0.15 to 0.06, but watch what happens when you do the combination. You give less curcumin, less resveratrol, but you have better lowering of um, inflammation. Anyway, I'm gonna stop here, but the bottom line is we've created a very, very powerful technology that is revolutionizing medicine. And we're gonna literally go um, solve every major disease on the planet. And I know it's a bold statement, but that's what we're gonna be doing. So that's why I say the man who invented emails revolutionizing medicine. Now, the last thing I wanna share with everyone is this capability that we, this systems approach can be applied to anything. And in fact, the systems approach that we've applied has been applied to another system. How do you integrate systems of science, systems of politics and systems of health? And that's the truth, freedom and health system. And I'll come back to that um, uh, shortly. But if people go to truthfreedomhealth.com, one of the things you'll realize is that we've created a very powerful technology called truth, freedom and health. And with truth, freedom and health, uh, what we're doing is we're really educating people um, on the systems approach. And our goal is to take every child, every human being on the planet and educate them on a systems approach to look at everything in nature. And with this systems approach, people can actually liberate themselves at a, at a very fundamental level um, uh, beyond just from a scientific standpoint. So if people go to truthfreedomandhealth.com, you realize our slogan is get educated or be enslaved. We teach people system science. It's the course I used to teach at MIT. We've made it accessible to every human being on the planet. We have books. And I recommend everyone go through this. It's around a 350,000 global community. And it's not only for nerds, anyone can learn um, system science. And we're using this as a basis to fuel a grassroots movement. We have many, many victories uh, throughout the world. But our essential goal is to go beyond the forces of power, profit, and control, which are dividing people into the world left and right, making people desperate. In spite of, by the way, if you look at all the information we have, it's not the world is getting better. 51% of children feel hopeless. 40% of people want to overthrow their governments. Two and a half billion people in the world are obese right now. So more information, more software is not getting the world better. And the reason is 
because we live in a system of ignorance where people are not sharing the whole elephant, they're sharing pieces, right? The whole system. And our approach is that what we're doing is where the solution is to give people knowledge, which is the ability to intersect things. And that is the science of systems. And it's gonna liberate people, it's gonna make people more active, which it is doing, but it requires people to let go of the old way of thinking. We want everyone to become their own guru. They don't need to follow gurus, they need to become their own guru. And that's the system that we've created. So Truth Freedom Health is an educational system, it's a community, it's an activism platform, and I encourage everyone to explore it. Um, we've made it very accessible to people, but it, this is an MIT course accessible to everyone. So we have electricians taking it, hairdressers, PhDs, everyone. We've put all my books up there. We have the scientific theory. In fact, in, hom in honor of my grandmother, I've created a software tool that allows you to study ancient systems of Indian medicine integrated with engineering system science. You can understand how your body is a system. That's also included. Then we include special lectures. Um, and then we have a system where it's a learn, teach, and serve model. You learn, you have to teach system science to other people door to door. We're doing this and we have a huge community. We get people on the ground to educate others. And we've also created the equivalent of Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube so everyone can communicate in a decentralized platform. So there you go. So I'm going to uh, end there for any questions. I think we have a little bit of time for questions. Indeed, we have uh, about 25 minutes. So that was awesome uh, session, Shiva. Um, it's uh, all your passion for um, really community building and, and helping people while doing that um, through your own research um, and uh, genuinity. Um, so there are a few questions from the audience. The first one is you referred to a book, a reference book on healing um and and uh, so some uh, Priyank asked about uh, the name of the book what's well, uh, an ancient, and also yeah it's an ancient book it's called samudraka lakshanam lakshana means face okay samudraka means the science of the face mm -hmm. yeah uh, so he also asked what's your views about its effectiveness well uh, I, let me ask him why do you, why does he think why does he ask that question? If if uh, MIT published a paper on it, would he assume it was effective? It's a very interesting question. The question is interesting, right? Because in fact, the media lab at MIT is now doing research on face analysis. Okay, but this system has existed for five thousand years. We really have to ask this question of why is it we question the ancient findings that people have done thousands of years of research and were so quick to accept Western conventional ideas overnight. Why is that? And you, you really have to ask that question. Yeah, there's, there's enough, uh, you look, the body is an interconnected system, okay? You can study, when we do diagnostics, people look at fecal matter, they look at the urine to try to understand what's going on in your blood. Everything else is connected to another. In fact, every part of the face and by the way, bone remodels itself, skin, fascia remodels itself. Every dysfunction in your body can be exhibited in your face at any point in time. Yeah, actually, uh, there's some clarification about the question. Uh, uh, Priyank is rephrasing his question by asking you uh, about your own experience with uh, with this way of analysis, with, based on what you yeah, so, so, saw you so managed we, doing. 
Yeah, so there's more than enough evidence. You know, we've done our own research on this. We have a tool called Know Thy Face, but um, you can just Google face and medical analysis, how much literature has come out over the last 50 years on this. Um, but the reality is, and by the way, you can look at the tongue, you can look at the eyes, you can look at hair. and The body is interconnected. The problem in Western, by the way, Western medicine is excellent for surgery. If you are in a crisis situation, Western medicine was developed for wartime medicine in the 1800s. In fact, Florence Nightingale was one of the mothers of really Western healthcare. She was seeing soldiers dying on the field. She's the one who created the system of hospital hygiene. And she had a vision that if you made the hospitals clean, you could have real research. But the goal of Western medicine in the Crimean War where it came out was to put the soldier back on the field. So if his hand was cut off, the goal was to sew back the hand, right? If something was, uh, their liver was punctured to heal that. Excellent for that, but it was not intended for long-term preventative maintenance. That's what Eastern systems of medicine were designed for. So God forbid you got into a major car accident, of course you should use conventional Western medicine. But do not look to Western medicine to figure out what you should eat because the average doctor maybe gets 10 hours of nutritional training, okay? And in fact, the doctors in India right now, they don't even care about nutrition. They just wanna give this drug all the time. They're just trained in an if then else model. In fact, the Indian doctors in India are worse than the American doctors. American doctors are at least learning some yoga and nutrition. Many of my relatives who are doctors, I don't even know how they became doctors. I'd be very afraid to even get any treatment from them. Uh, but it's just, if this, do this. If this, do this. You know? It's scary. Okay? It's frightening, actually. They're programmed. They're androids. Yeah, and medicine is not supposed to be chat GPT. Okay? Chat GPT is a dumb program. It's only a function of the training data. So if you have a bunch of dumb people training it, it's going to become even dumber. The issue of uh, healthcare was supposed to be was supposed to be a personalized relationship between the doctor and the patient. When my grandmother looked at someone, she felt them, touched them, talked to them. Right? Bedside manners. That's where real healing comes in, not just an if-then-else statement. That's true. Yes. All right. Let's move on to uh, a less contradiction, uh, controversial topic. Uh, well, every every topic should be controversial if it has any meaning to it. Go ahead. Because the, within the controversy is where you find the truth, Prashant. Uh, That's so. Don't don't be these, yeah. Don't be afraid of controversy. Otherwise, you won't get to the truth of who invented email. Right, and and right. not just that. In general, a healthy conflict like this is really useful. Yeah. To 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 get better community building bonding, I guess. Um, so Badra has a question. What was your biggest inspiration during your most difficult times during your life journey when all this was happening that uh, you had to deal with that triangle and research uh, struggles and such? Yeah, it's a great question. So it's actually a very foundational question. So what I noticed was, you know, I had been an inventor or am an inventor, a scientist, but also I've been a ground activist. I really believe the only way the world changes through bottoms up movements. Politicians don't change anything. Lawyers don't change anything. Judges don't change anything. The only, if you look back at the arc of human history, and that's why we built Truth, Freedom and Health. If you look back at the arc of human history, the only thing that has ever changed anything historically has been bottoms up movements which means when people neighbor to neighbor localized, uh, you know, organized bottoms up. In fact, the entire Indian system 
the village community system was a very decentralized system, if you remember. So anyway, so I had always had a deep uh, respect for that because I'd studied political theory when I was a kid. So, and I'd always been an activist. Now, when this utter racist attack took place, which is what it was, um, and there, anyone knows about it, you don't have to be black or white, because had I been a blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid with maybe a name, last name like Einstein, I'd be on the stamp and every stamp, seriously. It's quite profound that no, uh, you know, there's 1.2 billion Indians and Indians don't have anyone to look to as a great inventor. They have to look to Einstein or Edison, et cetera. That 14 year old boy's picture should be everywhere. Not because of me, because it is the facts. Now, when I was going through that controversy, when I'm being called all these names, I have four degrees from MIT at the time. I've won the Fulbright. I've won many awards at MIT. But when I said that email was invented before I came to MIT, I realized the real racism, which was being perpetuated by the liberal elite institutions. When you're a nice, good model minority within their institutions, you get padded and you get awards. But when you say, wait a minute, I invented email before I came to MIT, now you get spit out. And you get spit out because you're going against their brand equity. The big institutions have built this brand equity that they are the ones who are the source of all great things. It's not true. Now, when I had to fight, it was a very deep thing to fight for myself because no one else was willing to fight, except for Noam Chomsky, who stood up. Even though my entire life had been fighting for more, in more students to come to MIT, I, I organized the food service workers at MIT to get better wages. But what was interesting was to be in this very lonely place where people are making jokes, ha, 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 you invented email, bullshit, that was done by blah, when I knew the facts. So I had to go to the depths of my soul to recognize that I had to fight for that 14-year-old boy to tell the truth. And that was a very interesting personal journey to realize when you have to fight and you have to have that sense of respect for yourself. And that's the journey that I went through. And, and you realize why credit matters. Oh, why do you want to get credit, Shiva? Why are you fighting for credit? And these are the same people who fight tooth and nail for their credit. And I had to realize that credit does matter. Credit matters because it is important to know where the origin of things are. So the same people that tell you not to fight for credit are the same people who fight tooth and nail for credit. So it's a very funny thing. So I had to go through this deep personal journey, even though I was seen as a fighter for fighting for other people, I had to fight for myself, fight for the truth, fight for that 14 year old boy. And it's, and I believe, you know, when you put this in the larger Indian psyche, you know, India never had a good revolution like America had, you know, independence, frankly, wasn't a revolution. It was a transfer of power. White men with crowns left, brown men with white hats took over. And it's very, very important to recognize that in a national psyche, in an organizational psyche, it's very important people stand up for their rights and for themselves. And it's a very deep journey to do that because the outside forces are so much against you declaring, hey, I did invent that. I did that. In fact, if you look at Hollywood and you look at the Hollywood lawyers, they make sure every actor's name is first whose name is first, they fight for credit all day long. But when the average people create something, they fight for credit, they wanna smash you down. Oh, why are you fighting for credit? They diminish that. So fighting for rightful credit is a very, very important thing. You know, And you look at Indian history, um, people are diminished all the credit that should have gone. Two Indian scientists won the Nobel Prize 
before independence. No Indian scientist in India has won the Nobel Prize after independence. In fact, they have to leave India to win the Nobel Prize. And because in the 70-year history of India, most of the scientific institutions in India are still feudal. So we have to recognize what's gone on if you look at India, um, you know, India specifically. But the larger thesis here is that great inventions actually come outside from the edges. They don't come from the center. Great innovations actually come from the edges. And it's a very, very important thing for people to recognize. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, have to, I, I have to, give me one second. I have to plug in my thing, or otherwise I'm going to lose power here. But go ahead. You can ask the next question. Yes. So there's some preamble to that. So we have some time. So Arthresh is uh, uh, saying, Dr. Shiva, you're amazing. If cells can be modeled mathematically, can we also process diseased cells and bring them back to ideal model? That would reverse all diseases, isn't it? Do you think this is a possibility in the near future? Yeah, so you're asking a very, very important question. Just one second. I'm just wiring myself up here. So let me just answer, even though I'm off camera. Um, look, yep. uh, in the Indian systems of medicine, there is a concept called prakriti. Okay, what did that actually mean? Prakriti actually meant, one second, um, one second. All right, here we go. One second, everyone. Um, all right, I got the right one. All right, so, um, okay, there we go. We're not going to lose power. Okay, so if you look at the Indian systems of medicine, if you look at the Indian systems of medicine, they had this concept called homeostasis. So everybody um, has a particular homeostasis. So one of the tools that we created that came out of, you know, in 2010, when I went back to India after 2007, after finishing my PhD, I actually explored the Indian systems of medicine from an engineering standpoint. What I found was that, um, all systems in the universe are composed of what's called transport, conversion, and storage, these three forces. So your body at any point in time has a natural system state, your homeostasis, which is where you're healthy and everything's working fine. When your body goes away from that homeostasis, that is a disturbance. Now, in the Indian system, they called your homeostasis prakriti, and they cause your deviation from that vikriti. In, the, in, a, in, in a software system, you would call it bug-free, and then when it has a bug, it has a bug. It has a disturbance, right? Or an airplane's going in the right direction and it's going off course. This is basic system science. So what we created was a way, there's a tool that I created called Your Body, Your System. And I think I may be able to bring it up. And this tool allows us to, it intersects ancient systems of Indian medicine with um, system science. And this was one of the discoveries that I made um, and let me bring it up here. So if you go to um, yourbodyyoursystem.com, let me bring it up. 
So if we go to your body or system here, I think I have to bring it up in the Zoom. Got to do it in two windows. Yeah. So if you if you go here to your body or system, let me bring it up on the Zoom system. Okay. I think I can share, right? Yeah. Yeah. So if you look at, uh, so what I did was I created a very simple user interface and a tool, and it's called Be Happy BU. Okay. So this tool literally will you answer a set of questions and it'll figure out your homeostasis. And then you answer a different set of questions, it'll figure out your deviation from your homeostasis. And this will actually calculate what are the foods, exercises, yoga that are right for you. This is essentially what a yogi or a guru or a Ayurvedic practitioner does. We've automated it. Okay. Some people have these nice. simple dosha quizzes. This goes way beyond that. Okay. It took me 20 years to build this. But the reason I wanted to share this was that using this system, you get the deep understanding that yes, cells and everything in your body has a particular homeostasis where it operates well. And, and when it doesn't, you call that the disease state. And the goal is for an individual, for themselves to find out what that state is. And with Cytosol, we're able to do that. We're actually able to figure out what is the natural state and what is the disease state, definitely. Okay, I hope that answered the question. That's a lovely uh, uh, website. Uh, I must say, I'm a student of uh, yoga myself and uh, studying Ayurveda a little bit. Well, you can you so can learn Ayurveda here in thirty. I hate to say this, I gave a talk at Harvard Medical School a couple of years ago, and there were a lot of yogis and people. And I said, unfortunately, this tool is going to disintermediate you guys, because the reality is a lot of these ancient techniques have been shrouded in some religious folklore. And they hide the depth of the science, which everyone should learn very, very quickly. And that's what we've done. That's that's fantastic. Uh, uh, I'm going to explore it for sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure most of the listeners are going to as well. Next question. Um, how do you practice um, system science thinking on a day-to-day -day basis? So let me tell you, it's not only something I practice on a day-to-day -day basis, but um, it's also become a movement that we've created. So let me talk about both. It's fully integrated with what I do. So if you look at Truth, Freedom, Health, and I encourage everyone to go to truthfreedomhealth.com and join this community. But what we've done is if you look at those three words, truth, freedom, health, what do those words mean? And then you look at from the Indian system, Vata, Pitta, Kapha. And you look at from the engineering system, transport, conversion, storage. These are all fully integrated. So if you look at everything in nature, everything in nature is composed of three forces. The movement of information, matter, and energy, which we will call transport. In the Indian system, it was called Vata. And that was one of the discoveries I made. It's the exact same thing. Most Indian Ayurvedic practitioners don't even know what Vata Pitta Kapha is. We've literally figured out what it is. When you look at everything in nature also goes through this process of conversion, right? Clouds become, you know, and the moisture goes into water and, you know, your digestive system does convert a process called conversion. And the Indian system is called Pitta. If you look at the first part, the movement of information, matter and energy transport in the political world, that is freedom. Freedom is the ability to move information, matter and energy, right? Conversion is a process that takes ideas, all sorts of crazy ideas, and through debate and discourse and people butting heads and having controversies, you get to the truth. It's a good thing. 
And that is a, in, in, the, in the scientific method, we call that, we call it the scientific method. So truth is actually a conversion process. It's, it should really be a verb. All right. And then what is freedom? Freedom is the infrastructure which supports truth and freedom. Kapha is the infrastructure, right? It is the bones that build you. Um, it is the structural aspects. So you have transport, conversion, storage, and engineering systems theory. You have Vata, Pitta, Kapha, of truth, freedom, health. So to answer the question, we have created now a truly powerful system, the truth, freedom, and health system that everyone can use in their lives to intersect science, the fight for freedom, and taking care of your health. So I use it every day, but more importantly, you know, every Thursdays at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m., we do a global open house conference. We don't charge tickets, okay? It's open to everyone. You come there and you learn. And then we have a deeper institution that we've created every Mondays we teach people, all right? And we've made it accessible to everyone. And any adult who takes the course and has this community can give it away to as many children as possible. I went back in March to an Indian village and we gave it to 1,500 kids. But the future of the world rests on people understanding system science, period. If you don't understand system science, you're just going to be basically literally with bows and arrows and those in power have a nuclear weapon. That's the difference. So that's where my journey has brought us to. So all of these things are integrated. Cytosol, you know, our communication systems, our health systems, everything's fully integrated. So one of the books we have is Systems Health. Another book is Your System, Your Life. You can apply system science to starting a business, running a family, having relationships everywhere. Without it, you're basically, you know, a blinded person. You're just solving this problem here. It's like basically working on a piece of software and working on something here and you don't think about the side effects it's going to cause some other subsystem. It would be insane to do that. Well, on that note, uh, Dr. Shiva, this was really inspiring for a, uh, for an early morning here in California for me. And, uh, um, and so, um, evening there in India, um, and, and many other time zones, I guess. Over to you, uh, Prachi. That was really wonderful. All right, everyone. I'm glad you guys enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we're streaming it out to our audience, but people are also enjoying it. But thank you. I hope uh, everyone, so a couple of, you know, go to truthfreedomhealth.com to really understand this, but we've made this accessible for the first time in history. Everyone um, uh, should take advantage of this, but without the knowledge of systems, um, you won't know what email is. Email is a system. You won't understand the power of what's going on in medicine. Um, and mo moreover, you'll essentially be in the dark, like those blind men touching the elephant. Great. Um, Dr. Shiva, a few of the participants requested if you can uh, post your uh, website links and the book's name if uh, on the chat. That would be really great. Yeah, let me also, let me just put it right here. Person. Yeah, you can do that. And, yeah. uh, you can log in there. And we thank you for your time uh, to share your story with us. It was really interesting. Thank you so much. Great. All right, everyone. Be well. Be the light. Bye-bye. All right, everyone, I just that was just an early morning seminar I did to a leadership summit. I hope that was valuable. One of the things I want to mention to everyone is um, when you start, you know, really looking at the journey that I've been through from email, Cytosol, and the Truth, Freedom, and Health system, I hope all of you go to truthfreedomandhealth.com, recognize the power of system science, because it li literally will take you beyond left and right. It's very, very important. And right now, one of the things that's going on Twitter 
is, um, you know, I'm back on Twitter, but you'll see that I've been critiquing Elon Musk left and right. And uh, they literally shadow banned me. So Elon Musk is doing something worse than what the previous administration did. The previous administration just threw you off. Elon Musk takes guys like me and puts us in a cage. Okay. So if you're on Twitter, go and hit Elon Musk hard because he is not, he is not the supporter of free speech. He's playing a game. He's acting. Okay. We'll talk more about that. I'll do a live on this uh, later today. Thank you, everyone. Be well. Be the light.